You're listening to Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org. We hope you are blessed by today's message. Now, here's Pastor Scott. So we're going to continue in Revelation this morning, so before we do that, let's pray together, um, and then we will start working our way through chapters 17 and 18. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Um, we thank you for um, your word and the gift of, of your son, uh, how you've spoken to us through your son and how you speak to us through your word, um, even today. And uh, we ask that, um, that you would be very present this morning, that you would soften hearts, that you would open minds. Um, I ask that you would speak through me um, as I bring um, what I've studied uh, before your church, and I ask that you would, you would guide me um, so that your purposes might be revealed, um, that your will might be revealed in what you have to say. Um, is spoken, and so I um, give you all the praise and the glory and the honor this morning in your name, Amen. All right, so seventeen and eighteen. So as you probably noticed, especially the last few weeks, we've been going through Revelation um, fairly quickly, uh, and there's a few reasons for that. Um, reason number one is a lot of the book. I mean, the book of Revelation as a whole would have been read out loud to the initial seven churches that received it, and so they would have heard it all in one chunk. But we're not going to do that. We're not going to preach all the way through Revelation together, but. There are sections of it where there's visions that go together. Um, and although most, most want to, um, when, when you study Revelation, we want to get into the, into the nitty gritty and, and down into the details and try to figure out what each individual thing could possibly represent. Um, really, we can only speculate um, about that kind of stuff. And so um, there's a few things that I want to remember as we're, as we're working our way through um, because 17 and 18 um, about, about um, the, the, the harlot and about the city of Babylon is really all one big story. Um, and so it's important to study it as such. And so um, number one, um, it's important to remember, and, and I'll refer to this several times, that the book of Revelation was written to the first century church first. And because of the Holy Spirit working through John writing, it is written as well to every church since then. And so one of the things that I'm gonna do is instead of trying to go through here and figure out like how is this gonna look when the end comes and try to speculate and try to um, predict, um, instead of doing that, I'm gonna look to, to figure out what John was seeking to accomplish, out, what, what response was he trying to get out of the first century church when he wrote this? And then that application will be the same to us today as it has been to the church for the last 2000 years. So I'm gonna make, I'm merely gonna make hints basically as to what this could mean for us today and how we should respond because I think for years, readers of the book of Revelation have, have tried to align events and people in the book of Revelation with events and people of this modern time. We've tried to put together timelines and, and, and charts to try to figure out when exactly Jesus is gonna return and many attempts have been made but every single one of them has been wrong. Jesus hasn't returned yet. He's gonna return when he's good and ready um, and we need to trust him in that. So I'm not gonna try to guess when that is. I'm just gonna look at how the first century readers would have been convicted to respond to these chapters and then how we should respond as well. So let's go ahead and read verses one through six to start off with. I know there's a lot of material to go through. Um, and so, um, so yeah, I'll read one through six and then, and then we'll start to kind of work our way through this. So Revelation chapter 17 
starting in verse one, says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and talked with me, saying to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her own fornication. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So far in the book of Revelation, um, if you've read it before or if you're following along with us, um, you've been here for this series, the evil leaders that have been introduced are, number one, the dragon, which represents Satan, the beast from the sea, which could represent any number of earthly, worldly, evil powers, and the false prophet or the antichrist or the beast from the land. Now a fourth figure is introduced, the great harlot. And this harlot is portrayed in stark contrast to the persecuted woman that we read about in chapter 12. Now, if you remember in chapter 12, um, this story was told about this woman who represents Israel. And the purpose of the story was to win the reader's allegiance to the woman, to the people of Israel, to the, 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 the redeemed, her offspring, the redeemed people of God, and to alienate them from evil. And now in stark contrast to that is the harlot. And similar into chapter 12, the purpose of the story is to to start to um, alienate the readers from the side of the harlot or from pledging allegiance to the harlot. For example, the woman in chapter 12 is mother of the faithful and of the Messiah. The harlot is the mother of harlots and abominations. The woman in chapter 12 is pursued by a seven-headed monster and the harlot happily rides a seven-headed monster while she drinks the blood of the saints. And so right away we see this contrast and the idea is to alienate us from the harlot. It's for us to look at her and to be disgusted by what we see. That's kind of the idea. So why use the imagery of the harlot? Well, one is, is the reasons the harlot is used is to catch our attention. It's to catch the, the, the first century church's attention and to shock them specifically out of their complacency. And so stark imagery is used so that their attention is arrested. Also, the imagery of a harlot is consistent with many Old Testament teachings. I mean, we probably all know, and if you, if you don't, this will be new information, but this might be repeat for some of you, is, is Israel and the church is, well, is portrayed as, oftentimes in the Old Testament, as a bride with God as the husband. Or you've probably heard the church is the bride and, and Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. And so by worshiping other gods, the marriage covenant is violated. And you see this in Hosea chapter 2, Jeremiah chapter two and Ezekiel chapter 16, if you wanna do the research. By worshiping other gods, the marriage covenant was violated. And in the Old Testament, there were actually several cities that were described as prostitutes because their wealth and grandeur wooed the people of God into compromising their relationship with him. And so right away, one of the things that we're gonna notice is that this story about Babylon and the fall of Babylon isn't just, at least I don't think, about Babylon. Because he doesn't just refer to Babylon in here. I mean, in in verse one right away, this seated on many waters was a reference to the city of Tyre. It was a a quote right out of Ezekiel 27. Verse two, where it says, the kings that committed fornication, um, the inhabitants of the earth who drunk the wine of her fornication, this harkens back to a description of Nineveh in Nahum chapter three, verse four. Do I need to adjust this, Jerry? 
All right. <clears throat> and so right away we get the sense that Babylon may represent something more than just the ancient city of Babylon. When he refers to Babylon here, it's, it's, there's so many different descriptions that are used in referring to cities in different times. It's evident that Babylon or this great city in chapter 17 through 18 is not confined to one time or place. Now, I'm not going to, like I said, I'm not going to speculate as to what part the actual ancient city of Babylon plays, but we can only speculate as to how that's going to happen. The ancient city of Babylon now is about, is about uh, 50, miles or, 50 miles or so, something like that, um, south of Baghdad and Iraq, um, and other than what Saddam Hussein tried to rebuild um, about 15 to 20 years ago, um, the ancient city of Babylon is nothing more than some piles of rubble and mounds of nothing. So there's, it's really not even a city anymore. So we can only really speculate as to how Babylon may or may not play a part in the end times. But what we know for sure is that because this is a letter to the first century church, that John's addressing an issue in the first century church that we will recognize as an issue today as well. It just looks a little different for us. And when it comes to reading these chapters, it's important to read them in context with the letters that are written to the first century in chapters two and three. For example, Sardis and Laodicea were lulled into, their complacent, into complacency by their wealth because they had compromised their worship. They assimilated with the culture. They were willing to assimilate. They were willing to worship the Roman gods so that they could partake, basically, in the, in the wealth that Rome had to offer. And you'll see that in chapter three. And in chapter two, you see Pergamum and Thyatira accepted pagan practices into their church because they were worried about keeping social harmony. They were worried about their relationship with the people around them and their, with, the, with the empire and the, and the culture around them, and so they compromised their, and they allowed pagan practices in the church. In, in each of these cases, the church either didn't realize what they were doing or they didn't think that what they were doing was gonna bring any kind of consequence. They thought it was totally okay. So you can imagine being a first century church that's made these mistakes, reading this, the, these chapters about this, this harlot and, and the kings that had drank the wine of fornication with her, they're starting to, starting to slowly see, by, while sitting on the edge of their seats, what, what the Holy Spirit is trying to say, what John is writing here. And so that's, he's gonna start to break that apart even more. Starting in, in verse seven, going through verse nine, it says, but the angel said to me, why did you marvel? He said, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the 10 horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So the angel goes on to explain to John what exactly he's seeing here, what this, this woman and the beast she rides on represents. Obviously, the, the woman is meant to represent Babylon, whatever that, whatever that looks like, and, and the great beast is Satan. In fact, the beginning of verse eight, there's this direct contrast to this reference of Christ that we've probably all heard, the one who, who was and is and is yet to come. That's a reference to Jesus Christ. But in verse eight, it says, the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit. And then again, at the end of, of verse eight, it says, they, they see the beast that was and, and is not and yet is. And then it repeats it again, again later, the beast that, in, in verse 11, the beast that was and is not and is himself. So it sets up this direct contrast. Now, it's important to understand this. There's two, two forms of literature today that will help us kind of understand this because we don't have an apocalypse today. Like we don't have that type of literature written anymore. 
Um, like we know how to read a novel, we know how to read a um, we know how to read a newspaper article, we know how to read a poem, we know how to read a comic, we understand the differences and we understand how to interpret those just naturally. We know exactly what those are, but an apocalypse is something new to us but that we don't have today, but there are a couple types of literature that are similar enough that have some commonalities that we can draw from and we can use to help us understand what we're looking at here. So one of them is, as funny as this sounds, today's political cartoon. First of all, I'd say this, imagine reading a political cartoon from a country that you've never been to, that you don't understand. Um, you don't understand the culture, you don't understand the political system. Reading a political cartoon from another country wouldn't make any sense to us. We would just see cartoons. But we read our political cartoons today and we know what the elephant represents. We know what the elephant with the little wispy blonde hair represents, right? We know what the donkey with big ears, who that was supposed to represent. Like we, Uncle Sam, like we know who Uncle Sam represents. We understand that. And so when we read a political cartoon, we know it. And so when you read an apocalypse, he's using similar metaphors so that we understand something that the first century church would have understood, but we don't necessarily. So here's why the, the, the commonality. A political cartoon is meant to highlight and make prominent the worst features about a person or an institution or the best features about a person or institution. It's also used to indicate subtle connections between people and governments and institutions and political parties, et cetera. And now the second type of literature that is similar is, is satire. And satire is used to show that what seems desirable is actually ridiculous. And it seems that John's using an apocalypse in similar ways where he's, he's drawing this picture of this, of this woman that's sitting on a beast in a drunken stupor, drinking the filthiness of her own fornication out of a golden chalice. And that's riding this, this beast that represents Satan. And he's, he's, he even writes like you see in a lot of political cartoons. <laughs> I, just, I hear kids, which is great. <laughs> Um, and, and he even has her name written across her forehead in case there be any doubt. But he does it in a satirical way to show us that what seems desirable is actually ridiculous. So what do I mean by that? He says the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now this draws out images of Rome. Now Rome was typically personified like their version of a political cartoon as a, as a beautiful woman lounging on seven, seven hills with, with a, her hand resting on a, a short battle sword and drinking wine out of a golden cup. And the, the sword signified conquest and an empire and the, uh, the wine signified peace and prosperity. And many people in the first century fell prey to this idea. They became intoxicated with the apparent wealth and security that Rome provided and were willing to worship Rome's gods and accept Rome as a point of orientation for this world. Now then John takes this image and, and, and basically paints a political cartoon and then does it in a satirical fashion to show the church who this woman actually is and who she's aligned with, just like a political cartoon. He wants to move them to not be seduced by the power and the wealth of the world and to subsequently compromise loyalties to God by engaging in false religion. So he reminds them that this woman is actually not drinking wine that signifies peace and prosperity. She's drinking the blood of the saints and she's drinking the, the filth of her own fornication. She's not sitting, uh, looking, looking like a, looking like a, a Roman goddess, uh, sitting on seven hills. She's riding on a beast instead with seven heads. And so the churches start. So we start to understand. We start to see what what is actually represented by this great empire. 
But then by using Old Testament references to Tyre, to Nineveh, and to Babylon, along with these Rome references, he's building an understanding in the reader's mind that this city is part of a great power that's not constricted by time. So it applies to us today as much as it does to them. One of the mistakes I think that we can make in reading the book of Revelation is we can, we can just read it in the, in the traditional dispensationalist way and we can say, all right, starting in, chapter, starting in chapter four, the church has been raptured and so everything that happens from, from chapter four on to the end of the book is, is, is during the great tribulation and we're not gonna be here for. And that's the way it's preached. It's preached much like, well, this is gonna happen, then this is gonna happen, then this is gonna happen. So you better make sure that you're saved so you don't have to deal with it. But there's so much more in these chapters than just that. There's so much more that we can learn from it. And that's how the Holy Spirit works sometimes is it can mean several things at once. And so there's something, there's a way that we're meant to respond out of reading this. And so we start to understand that, that this, this power of Babylon is not only associated with Satan himself, but it, it spreads out over time. It was the same, same thing with the city of Tyre, the same thing with the city of Nineveh. And the mistake the churches were making and have made in the past, but specifically in this context, was assimilating with the culture, was worshiping false gods and using Rome as a point of orientation for life. And by doing that, they were giving allegiance to Satan himself. And we understand how much that applies to us as well today, right? We can't just look at this and say, oh, this is all about the destruction of the city of Babylon and that's all we can learn about it. No, there's more. There's more in here that the Holy Spirit has to say to us. So let's move on to verse 10 through 18. It says, there are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. That is a mouthful. The 10 horns which you saw are 10 kings who have received no kingdom as of yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. They are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast. This is when it gets good. They will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the 10 horns which you saw in the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Goodness. For God, for this, I love this verse. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman who you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Hi, this is Pastor Scott from Foothills Calvary. I hope the Lord is speaking to you through today's message. I wanted to just take a second and invite you to join us for worship services at Foothills Calvary. We meet Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. If you'd like more information on Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. Now let's get back to our study. I pray that the Lord will continue to speak to you by his Holy Spirit. 
So the seven heads also represent something else other than the seven, the seven hills. They represent, some, they represent seven kings and the 10 horns then represent 10 kings that have received no kingdom yet. These kings will make war with the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them. Now, this is one of the difficult things about interpreting Revelation is, is for example, you can come at this from so many different directions. Preterist readers would, would interpret this one way. Remember, a preter, someone who has a preterist belief of the book of Revelation believes that everything in the book of Revelation was, is symbolic only and was fulfilled in the first century. And so they would look at this and they would try to align these kings with Roman emperors. But the only problem is there's no qualification as to where do you start? Do you start with the first Roman emperor? Do you start with Nero? Do you start with Caesar Augustus? Where do you start by aligning these? It doesn't make any sense. And now on a different side of the spectrum, modern dispensationalists, like many of you may recognize Hal Lindsey, Tim LaHaye, and Jerry Jenkins, have tried to align these 10 or seven kings with the European common market of the United Nations. But nowadays, both of those have more than, than, ten, than seven and, def, and more than 10 um, nation, nation members. And so that doesn't line up at all. And then none of that came to fruition. And today, sometimes we look at the Pope or we look at the World Health Organization or we look at different countries and, and we try to figure out how this could represent them. We try to fit that all together. But really, again, this is another thing that we can only speculate. We can only try to guess. I mean, if you want to do some research on that, feel free to. It's, it's fascinating to try to figure out how all of this links together in different periods of time. But like I said, I think one of the main purposes of this is, it, is the, of these chapters is it's expecting a response from us, and it's our job to figure out what that response is, led by the Holy Spirit. In staying consistent with how numbers are used in the book of Revelation, for example, like seven indicates perfection, 10 indicates some kind of completion, 12 indicates completion, things like that. In the book of Revelation, these numbers are used in, oftentimes in a symbolic way as well as a, as a literal way. And so if this book was written to address issues in the first century, then we should take a different perspective. And here's what it is. We probably won't understand this fully and know what it means until it actually happens, until we actually see it come to fruition. But, and this is why verse 17 is my favorite, but we know this, the totality of the beast's power, of Satan's power, along with the, the beast out of the sea and the harlot will self-destruct. Evil power will self-destruct and Jesus Christ will be victorious as his father's will is carried out. But until then, we have to be careful not to be lulled into a sense of complacency, like some of the first century churches were. Lulled into complacency by today's wealth that causes us to commit idolatry and subsequent fornication with the harlot who's not limited to one time or place. We have to be careful to, to, to pay attention to when we put all of our trust in a, in a system or a government or a country we have to be careful that we're not giving allegiance to Satan himself. And we also need to be careful not to envision the worship of false religion as some archaic old world act of bowing before manufactured idols or figurines, having like a golden statue that you burn incense in front of. The, the biggest compromise that the church was making in the first century wasn't always just this. It was mainly one big mistake and it was accepting Rome as their point of orientation for how the world works. So I hope this sounds familiar as we look at our own situation, as we look at our own country, as we look at how churches are, churches are changed by the culture around us rather than vice versa. The churches in the first century looked at the Roman Empire and they changed their perspective on life 
and aligned themselves with the Roman Empire's freedom, wealth, security, and values as the foundation for their thought and view of life. We must be careful today that we use God, what he said and done in his word as our point of orientation, and not the culture around us and not the country that we live in. Many of you have probably noticed recently that, that the Church of England, the Anglican Church, has, has okayed gay marriage. Um, I don't want to put a shameless plug for the sexual identity seminar that's coming up, but it's March 4th. If you have any questions, that'd be a good place to go. But not only that, but they're starting to put together a, tra a, a, a translation. Well, I use the term translation loosely. They're, they're, they're putting together their own version of the Bible that takes out everything that's everything that refers to gender, they're making it gender neutral. They're basically making it a book of, of they, them pronouns because they don't want to offend somebody. So you want an example of how the church is being influenced by the culture around us? There's one right there. It's happening and we need to be careful of that. We need to be very careful not to compromise our values and our faith. We have to be careful not to compromise our trust in God's word by assimilating with the culture around us. What God's word says is true. So the question we have to ask ourselves, how often do we compromise our commitment to Christ because we're lured in by the world, its temptations, and its luxuries? In case this wasn't made clear before, this is the mark of the beast. It's not a credit card. It's not a vaccine. The mark of the beast is a heart posture in which we compromise our commitment with God and we pledge our allegiance to someone other than him. That's the mark. I should have warned you. So normally, for whatever reason, when I preach, I end up getting like the happy, like positive sermons, and then Scott has to deal with the really heavy ones, but this time it's switched. <laughs> so, so I'm the one presenting the, the heavier message, and then next week, Scott's in verse 19, which, oh, of course, heaven exalts over battle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he's going to bring you all the, the happy exaltation next week after we go through this heavy one. So everyone doing Okay. All right. So chapter 18, let's, let's move on. Verses one through three. It says, after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. So this chapter begins with an angel of great authority declaring that Babylon the Great is defeated. It's fallen, and instead of being a place of wealth and success, it's a place only good enough for demons, foul spirits, and unclean and hated animals. In verse three, we see fornication and subsequent wealth that comes to the nations that engage with Babylon the harlot, and the same judgment that comes to the harlot will come on them as well if they don't repent. And so, as he does often with the book of Revelation, John is writing to influence the way that we are living now. He's not just talking about things that are happening in the future. He's talking about events that are going to happen in the future as a way to shift our perspective and to shift the way we're living. It's meant to startle us into considering our current commitments and relationship to the ways of God. Now, when it talks about this idea of, of fornication again, if you remember in chapter 14, uh, the 144,000 standing on Mount Zion with Christ were referred to as virgins. Now, that's, 
not meant to say that only 144,000 Jews are gonna be saved and they're all, they all have to be virgins. It's not what it's saying, but it's, it's meaning to contrast them with those that worship the beast and drink the wine of her fornication, that have committed fornication with her. It's a contrast between the redeemed and the faithful and those that worship the beast. Now, verse three would have made many of the first century readers uneasy, specifically the churches that I mentioned already. And it should have the same effect on us. They would have read verse three and, and probably thought, the merchants of the earth have become rich, the, the abundance of her luxury. And some of those churches are thinking, well, we compromised a little bit and, we've, and we're, we've become richer and more abundant because of that. And so they're starting to put pieces together that these kings that have indulged with her luxury aren't just actual kings. It's, it, it's also referring in, in some ways to the church if we choose to align with worldly powers and place it in the, in the, where, where God should be. And then in verse four through eight, verse four specifically, and it says, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. And so right, right after the church reads this, the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. They're starting to realize like, oh, we might fall into that category. And then there's the exhortation, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. And so this is another, another reminder that this chapter isn't just about Babylon because these churches weren't living in Babylon. In fact, these churches weren't even living in, in Rome specifically. They were just influenced by the Roman Empire. And so keeping in mind that they didn't live there, this call to come out of Babylon isn't a call to leave the city of Babylon. It's a call to disengage from compromising their beliefs to the comfortability of assimilating with the culture around them. In verses five, they're starting in verse five, going through, going through eight, it says, for her sins have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works. And the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am no widow and I will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. God remembers the sins of the corrupt worldly powers and will repay with judgment. In fact, the same measure that the harlot bathed in wealth and luxury, that judgment will be measured back to her two times in judgment. Now, again, we try to put ourselves in the place of the first century church. They're starting to put this together. They're starting to understand that their assimilation with the culture, their compromise in their relationship with God so that they can fit in is not looking so good anymore. They're starting to realize that there's consequence to this. So let's read verses nine through 20. This is a large chunk, so I'm gonna read through it quick. Ready, set, go. <laughs> verse nine, but this all fits together, I promise. So verse nine, whoops. Does that mean the sermon's over? <laughs> the kings of the earth who committed fornication and live luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Oh, those poor people. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, 
Every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon, and incense, fragrant oil, and frankincense, wine, and oil, fine flour, and wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, chariots, and bodies and souls of men. That fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster who travels by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning saying, what is like this great city? They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she was made desolate. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. So there's a lot in here. But I'm gonna pick out a few things that stood out to me that I think are important for us to realize. First of all, at that list, the end of, at, of verse 13, the end of that list, it tacks on in the bodies and souls of men. Keep that in mind because we're gonna come back to that at the end of the chapter. That's important. That's one thing that kind of got slipped in there that it's easy to miss if you're reading through the list really quickly. But some of the things that stood out to me is first, as we read this kind of different perspective of the, the city of Babylon, we see the perspective of those that became rich, um, that, that aren't in the church, that don't follow Jesus. And we see that their reasons for mourning are self-indulgent. In verse 11, the merchants mourn because they realize that with the destruction of this great city, they will lose income. No one will buy their merchandise. In verse 19, the shipmasters and sailors express a similar concern, self-indulgent concerns. They're realizing that all the wealth they had, all the wealth that Babylon had just came to nothing. Now second in verse 10, 15, and 17, we see that the mourners stand at a distance to mourn and see destruction because they wanna be very careful that they don't incur the same judgment. It's funny that they were so invested in the city. They, they were willing to, to basically commit fornication with this. They were willing to, to sell off and, and, and sacrifice all of their values and everything that they believe just so they could make money with the city. But then as soon as the city is destroyed, they're standing at a distance, observing from a long way away, weeping and mourning. And lastly, it's clear that the mourners still do not see, in contrast to the church, they still do not see the harlot or Babylon for who she truly is. Remember this satirical portrayal that, that John is painting for the church is meant to open their eyes and shock them into considering a different perspective on this, this great empire that they were starting to assimilate with. But the world doesn't see that. In verse 16, they still see her as the city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. In other words, they st still see her like the goddess Roma lounging over seven hills with wine and with a battle sword in all her glory. But see, that's part of the point. John is writing so that we see the harlot for who she truly is, so that we see these worldly powers for who they truly are. In contrast with the church that should at this point understand who the harlot really is, if you've been reading along, those who committed fornication with the harlot still don't. And so he's exhorting us to open our eyes. 
just as this would have revealed the reality of who Rome is to the first century church, this reveals the same to us today as we look at the wealth and prosperity of the powers that be. Like Dr. Warren Wiersbe says, we have to identify our Babylon or our Rome today, and we have to divorce ourselves from it. Because today we're in danger of identifying with these mourners of the city of Babylon, just as much as the first century church was. One of the threaded themes that runs through the book of Revelation is that aligning ourselves with worldly powers is dangerous because they're typically not what they seem, like John is talking about here. More often than not, Satan is behind them. So to go back to verse 13, and the bodies and souls of men, that's one of the things that the worldly powers trade. That's one of the things that they use to gain what they have. And so we see that again, and as we look at and look at, look at verse 21 through 24, the finality of the harlot's judgment. It says, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, thus with violence, the great city of Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpers, trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore and the voice of bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. And this is the connection to verse 13. And in her was found the blood of prophets and the saints and all those who were slain on the earth. This harlot uses people for her purposes. These cities and Satan use people for his purposes and his purpose is destruction and sin and to pull people away from God. She will deceive no more and no more will she drink the blood of the saints. In contrast with those that, who mourn Babylon's defeat, at the end of the chapter, an angel throws a millstone into the sea to signify the total finality of Babylon's defeat and reveals her secret. Like in verse 13, like in verse 24, we see that her success and peace was won through the blood of the prophets, the saints, and all those who were slaughtered on the earth. Her success and wealth is won through death and through sin and through fornication. The ancient city of Babylon grew her empire in the, in co and cost lives. And we see that in Jeremiah 51 and the Roman empire did the same. It, Tacitus in his annals, um, he, he talks about Rome being, Rome purchased peace stained with blood, just like Babylon did. So for us today, just like the first century church with Rome, we have to be careful not to rely on a worldly kingdom for our security and our well-being. We have to be careful not to rely on a, uh, on a worldly institution or, or country or government for our values, for our understanding of the world, for our understanding of God, because we see this happening in England right now. We see the church being controlled by what the country thinks and what the country believes is right, not what the word of God says. As this passage identifies, as well as the rest of the book, the devil is actually behind it all. And the security and the wealth was won through the blood of other people. But we know this, and all this heaviness, and all this destruction, Babylon, and what it represents will fall. Because like we read in 17, at the very end of, of chapter 17, God's purposes are being worked out through all of it. Every single bit of it, even the, even the kings that give their power to the beast, God's will is being worked out through that. 
So to kind of sum this all up, I found a really good conclusion from, um, from Warren Wearsby. And so I'll just, I'll just read this. This really sums up everything well. The harlot is identified with Babylon and the bride of Christ with heavenly Jerusalem. Babylon will be destroyed and Jerusalem will be the bride's home for eternity. John had Rome in mind when he wrote this chapter due to the imagery he uses, but the imagery means so much more. Babylon symbolizes the whole godless world system that caters to the appetites of sinful men and women. The church must separate from that. And here's that quote I used earlier. In every age, the church has to identify its Babylon and separate from it. If we are made aware of our own complicity with worldly ways and distance ourselves from it, then the goal of this passage is realized. What, what God is trying to tell us through, through this understanding of what, of what worldly powers are aligned with, he's meaning to tell us that we need to become aware of where our allegiances lie. Hence the title of the, the sermon, Unholy Allegiances. And this brings us to, to the, the, the last reason why the imagery of the harlot was used, even more than just the stark imagery, even more than it's a consistent theme throughout the Bible. But the theme of the harlot was used because committing idolatry and putting something else in the place of God, remembering again that idolatry isn't just worshiping an, an idol, even though that's the root of the word. Idolatry is putting something in the place of God and finding our, our security and our wealth and, our, and, and, and trying to discover who we are through that thing. By committing idolatry in that way, as well as many others, we're actually committing adultery as the bride of Christ. So what are we to avoid then? And in what instances have we compromised our loyalties to God and committed adultery by, by worshiping false gods or false religion or worldly power or by putting something else in God's place? In what ways have we become complacent and lulled and seduced by the world's wealth, power, and luxury? Because you have to understand that there, there are so many things that we can become idols that we can put in the place of God. And many of you have probably heard this before, but it's not, just, it's not just about bowing before a false God necessarily. It's putting something else. It's finding our, our security and, 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 our, and our understanding of the world and setting as our point of orientation something other than God, anything other than God. Because that could be our country. That could be our government. That could be our kids. That could be our spouse. That could be our church. That could be your pastor. I don't think that's an issue here. I'm just trying to provide examples. Anything that we put in the place of God that's not meant to be there means that we're committing adultery as the bride of Christ and we need to repent. And I know that's, I know that's really... Like I said before, that's really heavy, but John uses this imagery because he knows that it's heavy. He knows that it's hard to, for us to realize because the devil whispers in our ear constantly and confuses us and, and, and convinces us to align with the culture, to align with the world around us. But we can have trust in this. We can have hope in this. Again, amid all of this, this destruction and, and, and fear and, and heaviness of reading these chapters and, and, and understanding we need to be careful where we're at, the focus of these two chapters is on that Babylon is de will be destroyed and that it will exist no more. That means Satan's kingdom will be destroyed. That means Satan will be destroyed. And then this happens. And this is verse 19, or this is chapter 19, verse one. I didn't put these up in the slides, but... It says this, and after these things, this is our hope. 
This is why we can have hope even after reading about this in 17 and 18. And after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and honor and glory and power belong to the Lord our God. Verse verse two, for true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth in her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants and shed by her. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God and that we can have hope in. We can have hope that we have a chance to repent, that we have a chance to lay all of our idols before him right now and to say to you alone be the glory, the one who was and is and is to come. And we can trust in that, right? We can trust in his holiness and his goodness. We can trust in his righteous judgment that it's not unfair and that it will come exactly when he wants it to come. Amen? Amen. This has been Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. We hope you are blessed by today's message. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org.